India's elephant charges on through the crisis. March the 2nd, 2010. Crisis. What crisis? Indian policymakers are not asking such a complacent question. But India has had a good crisis. Now its task is to unwind the exceptional support given to the economy and push through the reforms needed to sustain fast and inclusive growth. When Pranab Mukherjee, the finance minister, presented his budget last week, he noted that a year ago India confronted a double challenge, the global crisis and a poor monsoon. Now, I quote, I can say with confidence that we have weathered these crises well, end of quote. As the Indian Government Economic Survey put it, and I quote, a variety of stimulus packages were put in place in the second half of 2008-09, in the interim budget of 2009-2010, to and again three months later in the main budget of 2009-2010. to By the second quarter, the economy showed signs of turning, and now, close to the end of the year, India seems to be rapidly returning to the buoyant years preceding 2008. End of quote. In the 2008-09 financial year, India's gross domestic product expanded by 6.7%. This year, it is forecast to grow by 7.2%. If the Indian economy has succeeded in surviving this test with so little damage, even cautious analysts must be more optimistic about the future. Stimulus has its costs. The central government's fiscal deficit expanded from 2.6% of GDP in 2007-08 to a provisional figure of 5.9% in 2008-09 and an estimate of 6.5% for this year. If one includes the states, the deficit jumped from 4% of GDP in 2007-08 to 8.5% in 2008-09 and a forecast of 9.7% for this year. India's nominal GDP grew at an average rate of 14% between 2004-05 and 2009-10. That makes deficits of 10% of GDP quite sustainable. I wish that were equally true of the UK. Nevertheless, continuation of such deficits is undesirable. First, much of the spending, particularly on fertilizer, food and petroleum subsidies, is poorly targeted. Second, the public sector savings collapsed from 5% of GDP in 2007-08 to 1.4% in 2008-09. This needs to be reversed. Before the crisis, the country's gross savings rate had hit 36% of GDP. Given the country's attractions to long-term foreign capital, that would allow an investment rate of close to 40% of GDP. Such a high rate of investment could deliver 10% growth. It might well deliver even more. Since India's output per head at purchasing power parity is roughly a 15th of that of the US, the potential for very fast growth is huge. The extent of the optimism became evident during a week spent in India last month. Among the highlights was a conference on a book of essays in honour of Montek Singh Alawalia, Deputy Chairman of the Planning Commission, and, after Manmohan Singh, 
the Prime Minister, India's most influential economic policymaker of the last two decades, and a friend of mine for 39 years. I was struck by the upbeat tone of the essay on macroeconomic performance and policies 2000 to 2008 by Shankaracharya, a former chief economic advisor to the Indian government. Dr. Acharya is the most sober of competent analysts of the Indian economy. Indeed, the book gives a strong sense of the confidence of the technocratic elite in India's performance and prospects. Similar confidence is palpable among the business elite. This confidence makes this a radically different India from the one I knew when I was the senior divisional economist for India at the World Bank in the mid-1970s. The emergence of this elite consensus on where the country is going is clear to any regular visitor. When entering the Commerce Ministry, for example, bastion of opponents of open markets in the 1970s, I was much struck by a poster describing India as the world's largest free market democracy. Another feature is the belief that the pragmatism of India's policies, particularly over global finance and the balance of payments, had proved correct. Those in charge of a vast country with so many vulnerable people are rightly wary of making their economy hostage to the sociopathic tendencies of the financial sector. This was the theme of an essay by Rakesh Mohan, former Deputy Governor of the Reserve Bank of India. Yet caution must not be inertia. Dr. Acharya's list of needed reforms rightly includes, and I quote, infrastructure, agriculture, labour laws, banking, energy, education and retail trade. End of quote. Fortunately, a country as big as India could sustain fast growth even if the external environment remained less friendly than before. But that would make lifting internal obstacles to growth even more urgent. The external environment also matters in at least three respects. First, India has followed China in becoming far more open to trade. Indeed, India's ratio of trade in goods and non-factor services to GDP in 2008 was where China's was in 2003. Second, India depends on access to foreign raw materials, particularly energy. So energy price shocks would be very destabilizing. Finally, India, of course, needs peace. India and China are both ancient civilizations, but China's ancient state has a powerful legitimacy. India's state is young. Politics are a permanent negotiation. Democracy is not, as some argue, an obstacle to India's progress, but a necessary condition for India's existence as a state for all the frustrations and failures, the political system is workable. As a chapter in the Economic Survey on the Micro Foundations of Growth argues, even, and I quote, India's unpardonably large bureaucratic costs are like a valuable resource buried under the ground, end of quote. So much could be achieved if the state just got out of the way. So I have little difficulty in imagining that India could sustain growth of close to 10% a year for a very long time. Under conservative assumptions, the Indian economy will be bigger than the UK's, even in market prices, in a decade, and bigger than Japan's in less than two. 
I argue in a chapter on India in the world that India is following China as a premature superpower, by which I mean a country with low living standards but a huge economy. Exhausted by the burden of its pretensions, the UK should soon offer its seat on the Security Council of the United Nations to its former colony. Its condition should be that France does the same in favour of the European Union. Whether or not such enlightened statesmanship is forthcoming, presumably not, we are moving into the age of continental superpowers. Asia will be home to not one, but two of them. <laughs>